This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. The panel tonight for the next hour and 50 minutes. First of all, ladies first, a veteran. We love having her here. She is a former winner or nominee or or recipient, winner, winner, whatever you want, (laughs) of the uh, Woman of Distinction in Hamilton. She has run for council. She is on Cable 14 where she talks about council. Her name is Sandy Shaw. We thank you for coming in again. Always great to be here. And next to her, a first-timer, we're breaking him in tonight. And not only is he a first-timer, but we've never had someone of his profession in here. We've had a lot of other professions, but I've wanted to have him for a while because while you are familiar with his work, you may not know you're familiar with his work, Barry Gray is a photojournalist at The Spectator. He takes the photos that you see, and he is now going to be here to offer some verbal stuff to back it up. Barry, thanks for coming in. Great to be here. Uh, Barry does have opinions, by the way. He's not just a camera guy, although... I actually thought I was just going to hold up pictures and <laughs> you were going to describe them <laughs> right. to the uh, listeners. Because they're worth a thousand words, Exactly. Right? <laughs> you know, although that, I wonder how long a thousand words would take to say. That's, our, that's a segment, each picture. Uh, let's start with this right off the bat, uh, because neither of you qualify in this department. Otherwise, I may be more disinclined to bring it up, because apparently it's very insulting. There is a well-known insurance company in this country. I believe they're down, they, I know they're down in the States as well. And they are basically raising the issue about whether we should be doing more to corral old drivers, old people on the road. They're basically not saying get them off the road, but they're saying, listen, if you have a family member who's elderly, you should be doing a lot more to check and see if they're still a good driver. There, There's a lot of other things involved in this as well, but the CARP, the Canadian Association for Retired People. Is that the, um, Mm -hmm. I think that's the acronym. That is it. CARP, okay. Uh, They've come out and called it ageist. That if you are going to be pointing a finger at elderly drivers, you are being ageist. That is unfair to older people. Is it ageist or is it just smart, Barry, to say, you know what, once you get up there, you should be, we should be paying a little little more careful attention to what you're doing behind the wheel. I, I think it is smart. Um, as you get older, your reflexes get slower, your eyesight is more prone to failing, uh, elderly people have problems with cataracts. There's a whole, a whole host of things to, to consider there. So it's not so, out of, it's not in a vacuum of just, we're just going to be mean to you by saying you're old, therefore you can't I, drive. I don't think so at all, no. Sandy, what do you say? Well, I I would say that there's from, you know, from the time you can get a license to the time you can no longer have a license, there's an array of bad driving behaviors. And so as soon as you get a license, I think people just feel like you you can just go ahead and drive in any which way you like. The same could be said about young people who are new drivers and often are reckless or I don't mean to malign young drivers uh, either. But, you know, they may not be as familiar with the road or they may be a little less cautious than older people. So and I think but but my sense would be that young new drivers and teenage drivers have the graduated license and they have parents that are so hypervigilant because they're concerned about their kids. So they have someone paying attention to the way they're driving. But it's true, I would say, in my experience, even when, you know, your folks get older it's terrifying saying anything to your parents about the way they drive. Like, good luck surviving saying to your dad, you could probably drive faster than 20 kilometers an hour. <laughs> like, and, who and, taught you to drive? I've been behind the wheel before you were and, born. And then he says, I've been driving That's for right. 50 years. And who are you and, to tell yeah. me? Or but, you tell, or you tell your mom. You probably be better if you could actually see above the steering wheel rather than through it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So there's, you know, the way I, th- I think the intention is that we want safe drivers on the road, and really, um, it's sometimes you need someone to tell you that, like that. Maybe you need someone to say because you don't realize it happens slowly that you're, as you said earlier, Barry, your reflexes are slowing up a little bit, and you, sometimes you need someone, you know, kindly to say. You know, are you sure? Because otherwise you you may not even be aware of it yourself. Isn't the whole driving industry ageist, if we're going to call it this? When you're a kid exactly. learning, you, you're being, it's ageist. Exactly. You, you right. have to have a graduated license. Yeah. I know that my son, if he were to get his own car right now, what he would pay in insurance premiums simply because he's a 19-year-old boy is through the roof. Is that not ageist? Exactly. Yeah. It's punitive. Yeah, you're right. I mean, if we're gonna say, if we're gonna actually clear the deck and say everyone is equal, right. then 
every kid when they're 16 and they get their own car, whoever gets their own car at 16, should pay no more in insurance premiums than someone who has been a great mm-hmm. driver for 35 years. I agree. The whole yeah. thing is ageist. Yeah. Right. It, it really is punitive or it, it's, I mean, the insurance industry does just pick on a select few because that's a certain way they can reduce risk or raise their rates. Absolutely. But at the end of the day, what we're looking for is to make sure that people are safe. So we have exactly. a focus on young people. And then I, I would say a focus on old people it doesn't have to be, as I said earlier, simply punitive. I mean, if you're an older person that's been driving, driving all your life and you're not quite aware of how you've slowed up, the last thing you want after having driven for 60 years is to have a, an accident where you hurt someone. You, you, in some ways, protecting them from themselves. I See, I'm looking at this whole thing, Barry, and saying I have no problem with different rates for different drivers, but I think the entire thing from kids up to elderly should be based on your record. So if you are 17 and you've got a clean record, I'm not of the opinion you should be nailed with grotesque interest or uh, uh, insurance rates. But, Mm -hmm. But if you're 17 and you cause an accident or you're 17 and you get a speeding ticket, oh, heaven help you. And, 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 And right along the way, if you have a bad record and you're 40, I think the insurance rates are still quite low for those people relative to what they could be. That's your deterrent. We always say, how do we slow people down? How do we get them not to drink and drive? You know what you do? You make their insurance premiums. You allow the insurance companies to nail the bad drivers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the people who are responsible can actually have reasonable price premiums. Old, young, doesn't matter. Yeah. I mean, and for the for the elderly people, I mean, it, as we all know, it's hard enough to drive out there when you when you're reasonably young and you think you know what you're doing it's hard enough and and i think as you get older i think you do lose some skills and i think frankly a lot of people they know they know that maybe mom or dad aren't quite as good and and you just you don't want to admit it to yourself but again if you're honest and and you you care about the safety of everybody on the road, then you have to step up and you have to kind of face that reality. Because the reality may be, you know, if dad loses his license, then there goes the mobility, That's the freedom the to get around. You, and then you have to drive right. them around. Exactly. So I don't know if I really want to take exactly. dad's license away because then I'm going to have to take him to all the doctor's appointments and groceries and everything. The other thing, Sandy, is the tests that senior citizens have to take when it comes time to get their license are so far from onerous that it's laughable. Mm-hmm. See, I'm, I'm a, uh, I would have no problem if when you hit, pick an age, 80, 85, whatever, if you had to have a driving test, I, I, I would not mind that. Now, and if you pass the test, then it shows, hey, you can still drive and then no questions about you. But what they have to do right now at a certain age is you have to go in there and they will tell you, draw a clock and make it, Right. Three o'clock. And that and basically all they're testing, it seems, is to make sure that you don't have Alzheimer's or that you can still see and then you have some that mm-hmm. the things are still working properly in your brain. But that's not testing your ability exactly. to drive. No. And I, again, I'm I'm with the insurance companies in saying if you were charging older people higher rates just because just because they're older, that would be wrong. But that's no different than charging younger people. Right. Higher but rates. Th- the reality is, is you should probably retest everybody. Yes. Although that would be so cost prohibitive, I don't even know how you could That's, do that. But the government just, would love that because you have to hire like a nice thousand cash, new people. Yeah, cash grab. Yeah, you need a lot of other people. But I mean, even for someone like myself that's been driving since I was sixteen, and uh, should I be retested? Who know? I don't know. Or the mm-hmm. rules have changed. I know that my kids, when they were going through their driver's license test. Uh, I couldn't, some of the, I didn't know some of the rules. My son would say, no, mom, you can't do that. I went, ooh, I don't, you know, either I've forgotten or the rules have changed. Yeah. So I agree with you. Yeah. I mean, you get your license when you're 16 and and you don't write a test again until you're 76. I mean, there's a lot of, a lot yeah. of things can happen with the rules of the road, the, yeah. the kind well, of traffic they face. And I mean, I grew up in the country. Uh, I got my license in a small town. Right. You know, you're like the four-way stop is the big deal in town. <laughs> and then you come to a city like Hamilton or if you know any large city Toronto that's a whole other game i i so i want to go back to something that you both have said which is this is you know it's a rite of passage for young kids to get their driver's license and hopefully we get them through the early years when they're not really astute drivers and it's an up it's all open up it's uphill from then for them but as you said when you're old 
older and you lose your license, you lose not you know you lose your mobility, you lose your freedom, you end up it really it really does clip their wings. And so I think that a lot of older people hang on to this because it may be the first step to them having to move out of their home or to move sure, closer yeah. to family. So they really, you know, they, older people really want to pass these tests, whatever they may be, to hang yeah. on to their license, maybe perhaps longer than they should because of the freedom that they lose. And maybe if, as a society, we made that transition easier for them. O- older folks, stubborn old Scottish men <laughs> that I may or may not be related to would say, oh, you know what, you're right. <laughs> Oh, you're right. It's about time last. I hung it up, you know, but... But I go back to my first point that I said. I I really believe if the insurance company has to bring in X dollars across the board to cover the claims they're going to have over the course of a year, why are we going after certain people of certain ages, even if they have a clean record? If you go after the people who have earned the right to be gone Mm -hmm. after, but to the point where you can still have the same sum of money in the pot, it's just... We're not going to take money extra from you just because you're a boy, just because you're 16, just because you're older. Go after the people, build the system so you go after the people who deserve to be gone after. My guess is they do both. I well, mean, they do. I don't want to be terribly cynical about the insurance But go industry. more after it then. If you've had yeah. three speeding tickets right. in a certain time but frame. I think, I think you're right. I think they do, don't mm-hmm. they? I mean, if you've had oh, sure. numerous traffic incidents is you're going to pay more. But I mean, for those younger drivers, that's simply based on statistics. Exactly. Right? There's a sti- yeah. There's a statistic oh, that I, says absolutely. you're more likely to, so that's why you're going to pay more. Seems to me, again, that's kind of, if we're going to talk about ageist, that's, that's saying that because my buddy who's an idiot drives like an idiot, that I'm going to drive like an idiot. Right. And if I don't, I'm still being penalized. Just, we've got a few seconds left here. Would you then, I think you said you would, would you be okay if they were to put something in place that said every 10 years until you're 80, you have to come in for a driver's test? And then every five years after you're 80, let's say. But until then, every 10 years, you must come in and be tested. Personally, absolutely. Yeah, I don't have a problem. I mean, I just, uh, I got my motorcycle license a few years ago. So I had to sort of go through the process again. I had to go in you know, write the test, do a graduated license thing. So, yeah, I, I would go in and be retested. I'd be okay with it if it was the ministry doing that testing and the results were shared with the insurance industry. I, I am no fan of the insurance industry. Oh, I mean, no, it would, yeah, be, it would yeah. be a ministry thing. And, yeah. and uh, you know, everyone who listens to this show regularly knows I am not someone who's looking for more government mm-hmm. intervention. But, you know, a license is not a right. A license is not a human right to own. Uh, exactly. This is this is very different from a lot of other things. If you have a license, it's a privilege and you have mm-hmm. responsibilities. And so with this one, I wouldn't have a problem. Every 10 years you have to go. We already have to go and buy stickers. We right. already have to do other things. So emissions tests. Like really, we test our car Are more they still doing emissions tests? I don't know. Maybe don't know not. But, yeah. but we, we test now, our car more often than we test our driving ability. Yeah. Now, mind you, in 10 years time, uh, we'll have self-driving cars and we mm-hmm. won't have to control them. We'll just get in them. That's, right. that's true. Until they all go haywire. <laughs> and it becomes like a bad Hollywood blockbuster. Oh, ye of little faith. Well, I do want to share the story, by the way. Barry was telling how he grew up driving in... Uh, in the country. True story about Barry learning how to drive. He was out there. His mom was teaching him how to drive at one time way out in the country. And um, finally, after he had gotten to a point where he was good enough, she goes, you ready to go in and get your driver's test? And so Barry said, yeah, absolutely. So they're cruising along on this backwoods road. And just as they're about to get to the city, mom's drifting off in the passenger seat and the car screeches to a halt and she flies under the dashboard (laughs) and says, Barry, what are you doing? And he goes, well, I just switched it from D for dirt to P for paved. <laughs> Ba-boom. Be True here all story. Week. Be here all week. Try the veal. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Barry Gray from the Hamilton Spectator, photojournalist, and Sandy Shaw from Cable 14 and numerous and sundry other places in town, making up the brightest panel in Hamilton Radio this evening. Interesting, I thought very interesting, story in the National Post this week talking about how much Canadians pay for health care. Because one of the things that we always talk about as a lofty pedestal thing in this country is we have free health care. We have free health care. We tell our American friends, we have free health care. Well, we don't really have free health care. In fact, someone's paying for it, and that someone is us. And I wonder how it changes people's view, if at all, of our 
free healthcare, and I'm doing the air quotes as I say free, <laughs> when the number roughly, the, it's what they've determined is that it is somewhere, depending on who it is, the average Canadian, the average Canadian apparently is paying $5,789 towards health care through their taxes every year. And that's adult. That's adult. So they're saying the average family of four with two adults and two children that is earning somewhere a little over $100,000 between them is paying over $12,000 in health care costs. Sandy, does that change when we talk about free healthcare, when you actually think, okay, yeah, I can go to the doctor now. I can have my medical, my physical, I can get an arm, broken arm, cast it up. But I've actually paid, if I'm in a family of four, I've actually paid $12,000 for this. Does that change how we feel about our free healthcare? Well, I, maybe I'm not getting the point of the story, but I think we all realize we have universal healthcare coverage but someone's got to pay for it. The insurance, the, we just talk about the insurance company. But we never actually consider that how much we're paying, and we sort of think, oh, it's part of my taxes. It's a little piece of my taxes. It's a huge it's chunk a huge of your taxes. Chunk of, yeah. yeah. And, and so I imagine if you broke this down for how much you pay for your roads, <laughs> how much you pay for your hospital, how much you pay for public education, the, that number would be pretty high as well. And I think that you know, this this is something that bothers me particularly when they offer vaccines or the uh, the flu vaccine and they always say, oh, it's a free shot, a free vaccine You've shot. You've paid. Well, if you have any idea how much these vaccines cost, and, you know, I don't want to sound like an anti-vaxxer, but the stats aren't out there that every time they invent a new vaccine and they call it a free vaccine, the, you know, the, the, the Ministry of Health is buying that. That's costing a lot of money. So, I, I support your idea that we might not understand the absolute number, but I don't think anybody believes that, that it's not getting paid for somehow, somewhere. Were, were you, did it dawn on you that it was that much that would, because I mean, you're, you're, I don't know how much your family makes, but I'm, I mean, you, you're an average family. You have two kids. At one point, they were two young kids living in your house. Would you have thought that you were paying 12,000 bucks a year towards health? I, I guess you have to wonder or, or consider is, is $12,000, is it a lot? Really, I mean, it depends how much you use the system or that's not. But tr- we've we've it. we've all heard the horror stories from people that have gone to the states and and suddenly they went in and by the time they came out of the hospital it was seventy six thousand dollars or something like that. And and I guess it depends if you go to the doctor two or three times a year, you're kind of average, and you know maybe you had a small hospital visit or whatever. You might think, wow, I didn't get my twelve thousand dollars worth. But mm. if you had some major heart surgery or something, then you probably came in under budget. So I, I don't know. I don't <laughs> right. I, I don't see the twelve thousand really as being per a for a family as being a lot, I guess. I just I, when I saw this number I just thought, you know what, I don't think most people have thought about you're right, Sandy, we know we pay taxes for it. I don't think we think how much we pay. Right. And and you know what? Twelve thousand, you're right, Barry. If you go in and you have cancer treatments or if you have a long stay or if you get hit by a car and you're in traction and everything, man, that's a good investment. That's good value there. And th- I guess the question becomes more it is really we we're talking about car insurance a moment ago. It is really health insurance you're buying because you could go thirty five years without really needing any kind of health care. Sure. And I don't know what thirty five times twelve thousand is, my math isn't good enough. But then all of a sudden you need something and you're paying, that's where your insurance has come in. Right. But you know, the funny thing about this and the thing that I find really interesting is, and I'm not dumping on Canada's health system, but we as Canadians do very often take a rather high and mighty position about how wonderful our universal health care is and laugh at Americans who have to buy health insurance. I'm not sure how many Americans' health care insurance is $12,000 a year per family, even the good ones. I guess, but is the difference, uh, as Sandy said, uh, because it's universal health care that we sort of have guaranteed health care for everyone, for the people that can't necessarily afford it. And again, you're hearing a lot of stories in the States right now as they try to you know, work through that healthcare fiasco of people that are going to lose their healthcare, and and you just wonder there's no kind of safety net for yes, the it's less, two different the things. Privilege, it's two different things for sure. But for those who buy their healthcare, and we have, as I say, I mean, I, again, I, we're talking about apples and oranges. I understand, but we often will when they talk about it, and they say, "Well, I have to pay five thousand dollars in health insurance." 
well, I've never actually thought that I might yes. be paying 12000 right. in health insurance. True. Ours is so much better. Mm-hmm. And yes, Barry, ours does have a safety net for those who can't afford it. So yes, that is a different scenario. But I, I, when I heard this story, I, it, to me, it just put a slightly different light on the two things, that maybe we shouldn't be laughing at the Americans or other places that buy their insurance because they may be paying actually a lot less than some of us are. Yeah. We're being shocked. I think that we, when we hear those American stories, we're shocked by how much they seem to spend. But it's, it seems to me that you talked, I think you're precisely right when you said it's, this is not, this is health insurance. You're buying insurance. And all the talk about in the States is it's limited coverage and they don't cover pre-existing and there's a cap on that and you can't choose your doctor and so forth. So you're buying health insurance coverage that's more, more akin to what the, your driver's, what your uh, car insurance is. There's clearly what we're going to cover and we're not. But if you, if you calculate, and again, I, I don't know, what did you say, 12,000 over 35 years? My guess is that's around 400 grand, up there, 400 grand. You know, over the lifetime of being insured um, and, and with, the, uh, with the chance, as we've said before, that you're going to have some kind of catastrophic illness, it probably is good value. But I do agree with you that we've never really heard the number. Like when you hear the number, you go, oh, I, I didn't realize. I am paying something a, I am for paying this. something. Exactly. You almost get to the point, and uh, heaven help me for even saying this, but you almost get to the point where you're going, man, when I hit my mid-80s, I better have something that I'm going to need some exactly. health care for. <laughs> I, need, I want a new kidney. You don't need a new kidney, sir. I want a new yeah, kidney. I want, I, do, I want my money's worth. I want like, my money's exactly. worth. It's like when you go the all-inclusive. I'm drinking all this <laughs> terrible alcohol and this, eating this terrible food because I paid for it. What's your most expensive organ? <laughs> exactly. I want yes, that right. one. I want a new one of those. Oh, yeah, liver for all my friends. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you can buy rounds of organs at the hospital, but... You know, maybe it's worth a try. I've paid for it. Right. I've paid for it. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Earlier this week, I'm sitting in the office over at The Spectator. I sit very close to Barry. And Barry brings up this story, and I had not heard of it yet. But when I read it, it was like, yes, we're going to talk about that one Mm -hmm. on Friday night. A bunch of clients, we'll call them clients, passengers on a an airplane that had to divert and land on a tarmac in very hot temperatures end up sitting in the plane for six hours. People are barfing and people are crying and I don't know what else they're doing. Um, This is not the first time in recent years we've heard, in recent months, we've heard of issues with airplanes and airlines and customer service. I'm trying to figure out what, why is, and maybe there is an answer, but Sandy, why is running an airline as a customer service thing apparently so difficult? Because I, I don't see other businesses that are having the kind of public relations nightmares that these mm-hmm. airlines are having. And you would think after that thing with United where the, that whole, yeah. pat, you would think that every one of these airlines would be on peak high alert for public relations, that everyone is looking to see how you're doing. How does this still happen? How can it be this difficult to run airlines? I, I agree with you. And with the cell phones and things, the social media, you'd think that, I mean, the things that since that infamous incident, there's still been, you know, things that have gone viral that you can't believe people don't know that everything you do is now being filmed. So so that's not shocking. And the second thing, just about that incident in general, so I'm not really answering your question, but it, when well, I looked first at one? the incident where there, it was, uh, can I say, it was when they were on the tarmac, yes, right? It was yes. air transit, wasn't yeah, it? My yeah, love is that. Yeah. It was in the news. Um I actually can't, I would have gone insane. I, I actually think that I would end up arrested because I would have had claustrophobia and actually been fighting, clawing to get my to get out of there. I can't actually believe that they can do that. I, someone called 911, apparently. Two people did, yeah. I yeah. would have said I'm being held against my will. I would have actually considered this. So you would have made this a hostage situation. I would have, because how can they <laughs> physically contain you somewhere? I mean, I guess they could yeah. say because it's not safe and so forth, but the reason they're doing it is not to do with your safety. My understanding is that they don't want to uh, deplane you and put you back in there because it costs them more money. Just like when you're on a cruise ship, you know, the longer you stay at port, the more it costs the cruise the cruise company. So the very fact that they are prepared to put people through like an incredibly inhumane, distressing, possibly for myself, freak out situation because of money is egregious. And I agree with you. 
how do they get away with it? And my sense is that slowly but surely they won't. I think that it's reaching a tipping point where, you know, there's been enough incidences that people are going to seek out airlines that specifically have passenger charters of rights that won't do this kind of thing. Uh, Because I tell you right now, that thing was so upsetting to me who has a little claustrophobia that I would I would probably never consider flying an airline that had done that to pet people. It's inhumane. But Barry, it seems like it's almost every airline. So even if you pick another one, there's a chance that you could be. I, 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 I just don't understand when you know the eyes are on you, how you continue to do this. Yeah, it's it, you summed it up when you said customer service because there really is none. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're, they're treating the passengers like cattle, oh. uh, not as customers. Uh, the minute the air conditioning, the power went out on that plane and the air conditioning failed and then they had to kick open the doors like that's going to help. You're inside a giant metal tube that's heating up and you know we're going to open those little doors and that's going to help somehow. The minute that happened, they had to get those people off the plane. But there's somebody making a decision thinking about, oh, then we've got to deplane them and maybe we got to check the security again and, you know, on and on and on. So let's just leave them there. So whether it's bottom line or we just really don't care. But again, you have to know the backlash from that is going to be huge. I mean, I'm sure if they had a do over on that after everything that followed over the, you know, the following three days they might have let them off the But plane. here's what I don't understand, and I go back to my point. If there had been, and I maybe there has in recent months, I don't remember one, but if there had been uh, a food poisoning outbreak at a fast food chain, right? all right, we won't name any because there hasn't been one, but let's say food chain X, suddenly it was discovered that they had served some bad hamburgers, and you know what? It, it could happen. You hope it doesn't, but it could happen. Something horrible goes wrong. At the, You apologize profusely. But then you and every other fast food chain, you would think, are going to be saying, double down, make sure that we're following procedure, make sure the burgers stay frozen, make sure it's only cooked when they're... We are going to do everything because we can't have this happen at our place because everyone's looking for the next one. That doesn't seem to be what's happening, Mm -hmm. happening with airlines. It seems like there's another one of these... Or something like well, it every and, and, week. And the problem becomes, is, as you said, I mean, you'll start to look for the airlines that will treat you with some manner of respect, but you can start to add up the list of planes that seem, or airlines, not planes, airlines that seem to be treating people wrong. So I don't know, that list seems to be growing. So where's the list of the ones that right. actually are, are more into customer service. Just go with Dustin Hoffman and Rain Man. Qantas, Qantas, never had a car. Oh, Qantas. Is that it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. yeah, but no, yeah. I, I like I. To me, it's just it's it's incomprehensible that this could be happening again and again. And maybe maybe it shouldn't be incomprehensible when you're moving this many people in this many planes in this many cities. Maybe we're making too big of a deal out of this because it's one out of. 30,000 flights that has gone awry. And based on those numbers, that's pretty good, actually. One out of 30,000, one out of 50,000, that's not bad. One of the things that's happening, too, I think, is that because customers, because travelers are looking for cheaper and cheaper and cheaper flights, they're willing to put up with fewer frills, right? right? So, you know, you're seeing airplanes now where they're putting the seats closer and closer together. I mean, I'm like you, Sandy. I'm claustrophobia thing. I would be willing to pay more if I could get on an airline that actually said, you know what, we actually took a row out and everybody gets two two inches more. I'd pay more for that. They have first class. Right. Not quite that much more. Yeah, (laughs) not that much more. Not quite that much more. So you sort of took the words right out of my mouth, which is this is an industry that's going to the lowest common denominator because it's the drive to the cheapest flight possible. Because, you know, think of all the the sites that we go to that search for the cheapest possible flight. Well, you don't get it. You know, it's a a pretty intense industry, right? The costs are pretty high. So in order to keep those costs down... They don't take you off a plane when you're, you know. So but we then, do it a little bit ourselves because we expect cheap say and that. fast. Mm-hmm. So is it really our fault? A little bit, I would say, because you can't expect an industry that has a lo- is highly regulated. As you said, you know, you're in a, you're thirty five thousand feet above the air in a very, you know, uh, high risk. Well, not high risk, but it's a serious business when you're in a plane. They're highly regulated, highly trained. You know, and we're moving a lot of people all over the place in different airports, in and out. Uh, 
we can't expect it's going to cost the same as a, as a bus, right? So the fact that we are, at, in some regard, uh, we're, we're getting what we're asking for. <laughs> but the, but you know your point though is great because and I think it's bang on as well because Barry, who, whoever just said it about the fact that we are looking constantly for the cheapest deal on this, and that's where you're going to fly. I I know when we go away, I, I probably shouldn't admit it this callously, but we f- look for the cheapest flight to get there because you know getting there is half the fun. Not really. Not when it's flying. It's generally not. We want to get to where we're at going, and then have our fun. But if I'm asking them to bring prices down lower and lower and lower and lower and lower, well, where are they going? Where, where's the wiggle room for them, right? Should I be shocked then when I'm not being treated with white gloves and the old stewardesses and the Pan Am uniforms? Mm-hmm. You know, with, with, with steak wine. or chicken. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's true, and I and I think uh, yeah, the fact that you've given up your meal for a bag of peanuts mm-hmm. is probably a fair trade-off. How do I they think give it's peanuts a, on airlines? By the way, with all the peanut I allergies, think, I don't think they do anymore. I think they're cookies. No, they still have peanuts. Do they still? Yeah, have and I've always been amazed. You can't give ah. a peanut. You can't even be in the smell you can't of peanuts even peanut in school. In, in uh, Ivor Wynn, you here, can't even have a. Peanut and here you're on an enclosed yeah. space with people who could be di- have horrible allergies. Yeah. Here, throw peanuts around. But anyway, I, you, I think on. you should finish your point, which yeah. is that's an easy trade-off. But I was just going to say, leaving people on a plane for six hours on it's a tarmac not, we is didn't a bargain. whole other issue. We didn't Whether bargain you paid that. Forty bucks for your seat or not? That's right. I completely agree with you. That's beyond the pale and that you would never expect it. And I do not, I'm not a happy flyer for all the reasons that we just discussed. And it actually crosses my mind because I've heard of these instances where you do get stuck in a plane where there isn't water, you know, so you really, it, they really have, I've heard of these nightmare scenarios that have happened before. And that is not in any way, should not be an expected uh, a consequence of flying at any price, really. Does it, are you at all, do you hold the staff people? Do you hold the... Do they call them still stewards and stewardesses? I don't even know. Attendants, flight attendants. Attendants, flight attendants. Do you hold them responsible or is it the overall industry? Responsible for that incident or? For generally for the fact that, you know, I mean, no. some of these some of these incidents have involved flight attendants. Yeah. But again, I'm wondering if like are, when you are not, I don't know. I just, I just don't so know if it's them or if it's the industry I, that we look at. I would call it the industry. And I, I'm going to tell you an incident. I was flying home from Jamaica. How's that? And I upgraded because I don't like to fly. I want some space. And all of this, and I'm a cautious flyer. And I saw one stewardess, there was ding, ding, ding. One, one flight attendant looking at the other. And there seemed to be something up. So, of course, I'm one of those people like, is everything okay? I wanted to know what was wrong. And she said, yeah, just somebody lit up a cigarette. I went, in the bathroom? She said, no, in his seat. So somebody lit a cigarette up in his seat on a plane in 2017, and I said, "Are you kidding?" She said, "Yeah, just every every day at the job." So I think every day, so their job, so they deal with craziness every single day. See, we day, say right? the customer is always right. The right. customer is not always no. right, no. and I'm not just talking on airplanes in general. No. The customer is not always right, and we've come to a point I think where we actually believe that, and so we say, "If I'm going to act like an idiot, you should still." Treat me right. Bring me prop- my extra <laughs> drink. No, no. Yeah. And and some of these situations where you've heard of what's going on, some of them, even though they're on planes, and so it's the industry, some of them appear to me when you look at the story, they are entirely the fault of right. the customer. Yeah. And if I'm the flight attendant who's at the end of my rope already because of what I'm being asked to do, and now I get idiot customer right. who acts like a jerk and then demands right. everything. It's an un- it's a hostile work environment. It's, it's, it's a tough un- it's a it's tough unsafe. work environment. They work long hours, so it's not. It's, well, I don't know it's, if it's not unsafe, but it's certainly a difficult place to work. I would yeah, think. Yeah, I guess I didn't mean to say unsafe, but it's you know it's a high. It's not. It's they have and a lot of responsibility to load a plane, fly thirty five thousand feet of the air. They deal with medical emergencies. They deal with you know psychiatric disorders. They deal with some mm. guy smoking a cigarette <laughs> on a plane. You know, and they've got a lot that they have to deal with. And even I mean. The, they're long hours. I mean, we, when you get off of an eight-hour flight and you're going to the hotel room, they're getting back. They're turning that plane around and going back for another eight hours. So, you know, I think it's a combination of a, an industry that's trying to squeeze every mm-hmm. profit. Yes. The yeah. profit margins must be so slim. And part of the way they squeeze that profit margin is they really, they really work those staff, right? I'm just waiting to see what happens in another few months when marijuana gets legalized in Canada. If you'll be able to smoke a pot on Air Canada flights, because it's not cigarettes. I have a condition. I need my medicinal marijuana at 35,000 feet. You might be able to have your brownie. Maybe that's it. (laughs) Medicinal brownies. 
You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. One of the truly horrendous stories. This is this is a, this was a sad mean I thought it was mean-spirited, but this was a sad horrible story that we heard about in the last number of weeks that came to a head yesterday was the sentencing. You probably heard the story about this girl, this 20-year-old in Boston who was texting back and forth with her boyfriend who was committing suicide and she was basically encouraging him to go through with it. He was suicidal. No, there's nothing in this story that says that he was completely fine and she talked him into committing suicide for a lark. He was suicidal and she basically was the one saying, listen, if you're in this bad shape, go ahead and do it. And then when he was in a car that was running, I think in the garage, she told him to get back in the car when he got out and said, come on, are you going to do this or not? Like it's a, it's a horrendous story that really, I think all of us, kind of squint our eyes and feel gross when we hear this kind of thing. But here's the story I want to ask you, the question I want to ask you. We now are in Canada, physician-assisted suicide is a legal thing. Now, this was not physician-assisted suicide, but this, she was in trouble. What she got convicted of and is going to jail for 15 months for is because she was encouraging this person to do this thing. Would you be okay in Canada with physician-assisted suicide if, if a loved one came to you and said, what should I do? And they were in horrible shape and said, should I go through with physician-assisted suicide? Should you be allowed to encourage that person to pursue that? I know it's slightly different, but it's, in some ways, it's very similar. It, should it be, should we be blanching at the idea that someone might turn to their spouse or turn to their child and say, I have cancer, I have this, I have that. Should I seek out a doctor to help me end my life? Should that be allowed? Or should the decision, because that's what this is, it sounds like, or should physician-assisted suicide have to be done entirely in absence of anyone else in your family or some, or friend contributing to that discussion? It's a very tough question. Well, that's an easy one. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. I know. Yeah. But when I heard this, I thought of that immediately. I thought, is it wrong to encourage someone to commit suicide if they really want to? Now, again, this story, the way this is presented, yes, this is horrible. This is mm-hmm. gross. This is mm-hmm. this just makes your skin crawl. But how different is that from someone who's in a position where they want to potentially go get a doctor to do it? And they come to you and say, should I do it? And you go, come on, Sandy. Mm-hmm. Do it. Come on. You, you've got the chance. Do it. Don't go through what you're going through. Go ahead and get that doctor to off you. Is that different? Well, I, so it's a very complicated question. There's many moving parts to this, but I would say a lot of, a lot of my understanding from this case, a lot of it had to do with the intent. This was a malicious intent. So the idea was that this was not, it, w- it wasn't really just trying to support a decision that there was, that there was no other option for this young man, that this was, the, the intent there was not, uh, was not benevolent. So, you know, if you try to put that case onto the idea where we're talking about assist, physician-assisted suicide, you know, there's that extra layer. So if you are, it's your spouse or your friend who says, I'm thinking about this, and you say you should pursue your options. If that's what you're thinking, you should go speak to a doctor. I think the very fact that you're encouraging them to go to a legal procedure is very different than just saying, ah, skip the doctor. Listen, we, you know, we can go to the garage and I can help you out. It's very, very different. But I think that, you know, we as a, as a society, as a country, haven't quite got our heads around even physician-assisted suicide. I mean, I think people still have qualms about that as, as a, as a, as a, as a, you know, a, I guess a moral option or a viable option. I mean, there, there's doctors that will say that if that is the case, that they will opt out of that. So, you know, we we haven't even got to some of the the, the big picture understanding that that it's even it's even humane or allowed that, that if you're you know if you're terminal have terminal illness or you're suffering in chronic pain that that is something that you should have as an option. We're not even comfortable with that. Never mind having your neighbor say, "Hey, yeah, come on, go off you go," right? But Barry, if someone were to Let's say, for example, and, and I'm like yesterday when I was talking, I'm touching wood here, heaven forbid, but let's say you got, you suddenly found that you were in very bad shape health-wise. And not only did you not go to a friend, but a friend walks into your hospital room and says, Barry, I really, I really think you should 
go find someone and, and end your life. Should that be, how, how, first of all, how different is that from this? And should that even be allowed? Well, I, I guess the difference, uh, as Sandy said, the difference between those two cases is one of timing, where it seemed that that was the the young guy in the car and the girl, you know, encouraging him was kind of something that was happening kind of quickly in the moment, whereas something that involves a physician is, is a longer, you know, more thought out process. Uh, but I get your point. I, I I see where you're coming from, and and yeah, because you'd like to think that. You know, within a family, um, there'd be careful consideration, you know, that a spouse would talk to another spouse and maybe your spouse would say, well, you know, if that's what you want to do, I support you, that kind of thing. But if it involves somebody coming in or, you know, an uncle or an aunt or somebody who comes in and and just they're voicing their support, but they don't phrase it the right way and it comes across as being Mm -hmm. pushy. Um. Yeah, I, I I get where you're coming or from. Or a it's, child it's, who knows it, there's money in a will waiting. It, if you yeah, just say, hey, when you're gone, that money is yeah, mine. It, Dad, it's time. Come it's, on, do it's it. It's difficult. Do it. I, I, I'm also, here's where I really become concerned with this thing, is I am convinced, and, and not everyone is, but I am convinced that we will in time have physician-assisted suicide in this country for mental health. They mm-hmm. say that's not going to be allowed. But as long as we say in this country, and we do, that mental health, mental illness is an illness like anything else, that your brain is just broken, they can pass a law that says you can't have physician-assisted suicide for depression, but someone is going to take that to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court is going to say, well, why are you not allowing them to do what someone with cancer? It's another form of illness. We're going to, if we go down this path, we're going to have that, and then... What happens when someone says, Sandy, I know you're really depressed. You'd probably be better off if you just cut the cord. Just just let it go. Have have the see that to me is really no different from this. That mm-hmm. would be no different from this particular situation, except that it would be under the cloak of officialdom or somehow seemingly involving a physician. Mm-hmm. But it's the same thing. It would be the same thing. It would just have a physician involved. But does that change the fact that someone urged you to go and do that? That's real. Would it have been? Would this story have been better if a doctor had actually killed the person after she had encouraged and encouraged and encouraged? That's the part. It's not yeah, that. Yeah, that's an interesting. It's not that he died. It. It's that she told him to go and do it over and over again. Mm-hmm. And so if you yeah. have someone here who tells you to use your doctor, but tells you over and over and over again, really, right. how is that different? Yeah, true. I have no answer for that. That's a different (laughs) spin on it. I hear what you're saying because you may be saying to someone, a loved one, and looking for the answer, which is no, you you have you you know you have everything to live for, and we're going to get you better, and and that's that's what you were Mm -hmm. looking for. I mean that. So when you're let down by someone who says, "Oh, you know, you're right. There's no hope. There's no option. Go see your doctor." So so the the responsibility is huge. And my, my guess is the reason that we're paying attention to this story, which I, I actually tried not to pay attention to. But it's I a horrible yeah, thing. Yeah, and I happened mm-hmm. to be watching CNN yesterday to see, you know, about the indictments or, or the grand jury, and this came on. And I couldn't quite understand why there was so much attention paid to this, right? But I think that the reason that so much attention is paid to this, as is usual, it's, a, it's, an, it's an abhorrent story that is, doesn't happen very often. So I would like to believe that in the, some of the scenarios that you're laying out, when someone who either is terminal ill or has a debilitating mental illness goes to a friend or a loved one, that the advice that they give them is going to be heartfelt and not reckless. It's about trying to really think about what is best for them. And I think that's true in 99% of the time. But, but this is this story is the 1%. This is less than right. 1%. And in the 1% here, where you have two adult children who know, as I said, that there is money in a will, there's a house that could be sold, there's riches at the end of the rainbow. Mm-hmm. If dad would just kick off instead of hanging on for an extra 15 years in poor health, we can be... You don't think that we're going to have those cases here where someone's going to say, no, dad, come on, do it, do it, but, save but your pain, I, do it. Yes, but so the difference now, right now, is we don't have that next step, which is this person who's been counseled by their kids to go and, and you know, end their life does not have the option to go to a, a physician to say, I'm thinking about ending my life, and the physician then has the opportunity to provide them either the medical or the, the counseling that they need for them to change their mind. As it stands now, 
this, you know, you could counsel someone to, to commit suicide without that intervention. So in some way, by putting the idea that there is this legal option to consult a physician about wanting to end your life actually is a preventative measure. It prevents the kind of unusual scenario when you have, you know, just evil scheming people trying to end someone's life. So um, because as it stands now, people that do have debilitating mental illness, their only option is suicide. I mean, that is their only option, and they do it on their own, and they probably do it in ways that are, are is, you know, people, it happens all the time. We have a surprisingly large amount of people that commit suicide, mostly for mental health issues, and they don't seek, they don't have the kind of, if, if there's no other option, and that's what they've decided to do. I mean, we had the young woman that jumped off the, the uh, overpass. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are horrific stories, and if that really, really, after, uh, you know, professional counseling was her only option, wouldn't it be more humane if that's the way she's going to end her life, if that's what she was going to do, that she didn't have to do it in the most violent, uh, traumatic way for her family, for the people that saw that? That affected you know? other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But would this story, this one in Boston that we're talking about, would this have been seen differently? This is another part of it. Would this have been seen differently if this young man who ended up killing himself did not have depression but had a physical condition? Let's say he had something that was a degenerative thing like... Mm-hmm. Lou Gehrig's disease or, or whatever. Or See, I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, you know what? I think I, I don't know this, but I think a lot of people out there, if this had been a physical thing where he had been diagnosed with cancer or he had, as I say, ALS or something, I think a lot of people who heard this story would have went, she was helping him do what he needed to do. I think you're absolutely right. Which I disagree with wholeheartedly. And I don't see again, I don't see how that really changes much of this. Except that I think a lot more people would have been a lot more compassionate and seen her side of the story more if that was the case. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. But that does speak to how we approach and understand mental illness. I, I mean, I don't think Absolutely. We, I don't think we understand. It says a lot about a lot of things, of I think. Yeah. Yes. Oh, you're right. You're yeah. right. Like, I mean, I think we understand the, the depth of, you know, chronic pain or terminal illness, but we, I don't think we can get the average person doesn't understand that, that the, a mental illness can be so debilitating and can be equally as debilitating as having, you know, being chronic pain or dying of cancer. I think we're just coming around to understanding as a society how uh, mental, our mental well-being is, 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 you know, breaking your arm and having you know, d- depression is the same kind of pain. We just don't see it in the same light. We don't treat it the same way. We don't take it seriously, I guess. I, would, I will yeah. love to see down the road in Canada if there ever would be or ever are any charges or even an attempt at charges against someone who would counsel their loved one, though, to go through with doctor-assisted suicide. Because, again, I understand I'm not completely ridiculous. I know there are differences between this and that. But, Sandy, you talk about it. That, all right, Barry, just to play a role here, Barry is my ailing father. And I say, Barry, it's come on, it's time. It's a dad, come on. Do, and he now has to go to his doctor, and the doctor says, well, why do you want to do this? And Barry says, well, my kids are telling yeah. me I should be doing it. I would love to see the doctor then turn around and call the authorities right. and say, this is counseling to to kill yourself. So that may happen. I would hope it would happen. Mm-hmm. I really would hope it would happen. And and I, But I just don't see it. I no. don't see it because I see us here liking right now the opportunity. Many people liking the opportunity for doctor-assisted suicide, not wanting to get anything that would get in the way of maybe complicating this any further. We just want to make this nice and easy and smooth and... Well, exactly, because we see it as, as you said, the debilitating disease, there is no hope, you know, the family will all come together and it will all be done under the best possible circumstances, but as you said, you know that there is going to be that case out there there's where there's going to be, be there's going it. to be pressure put on somebody undue excessive pressure will be put on somebody you, you absolutely know that will happen we'll see this this i mean this again this was a terribly sad story and it's not exactly the same but my goodness i i, I whether you are in favor of doctor-assisted suicide or not in favor, I don't think there's anyone out there who can argue that a Pandora's box has not been opened mm-hmm. and there's all kind. It is not simple. It's not clear-cut. It's no. not cut and dry. There are so many wrinkles and twists and things that a lot of people just want to have a nice, smooth, easy thing. And don't complicate this. Don't make it difficult. 
but it is difficult. It is, it's and very it is difficult. complicated. Yeah. These, these are massive moral and ethical, ethical things that we're moral, talking about. Religious, spiritual. Yes. The questions are endless when you and, it, and legal, right? I mean, it is. There's nothing simple about it, really. But we're trying to make it simple, and right. that is where I get conf- I get concerned mm-hmm. about this. When you try to take something very complicated and you try to make it simple, it never works. It never works. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. There was a story that came out this week. We've known about this story now for some time, for well over a year, I guess. But uh, the inside baseball part of the story, pardon the pun, only came out this week. Hamilton guy by the name of Ken Pagan, who was the beer can tosser at the Blue Jay game against Baltimore, Back in October of 2015, I believe, he just missed the Baltimore outfielder, gave a long interview, and they wrote a long story about what went into the whole thing. And basically, if I'm paraphrasing, because it was 5,000 words, we could be here till Thursday if I was going to read it. Um, But he had had a few beers and in the heat of the moment in an intense baseball game, just sort of momentarily lost his mind and did something stupid and paid dearly for it with his job and his reputation and a charge and conviction. I think he was convicted or pleaded to something. Anyway, so my question is this. After this is all done, is a guy who does that a bad dude who deserves to be scorned and continue to have scorn heaped upon him for his stupidity? Or is it a person you look at and you go... Stupid, yes. Consequences, yes. But that's enough. Where do you stand on this thing? Is it something we should be, that he should live with for the rest of it? I mean, he will. On his epitaph, on his gravestone, it's going to be Ken Pagan. Remember the guy who threw the beer can? Mm-hmm. But should we just say, listen, it was a stupid thing and you've paid enough Let's get on with life and we can move on from here. Or is it something we should be still sticking to? Well, you know, the problem is, is that... Uh, in in this day and age of social media and we're all quick to judge, everybody already has an opinion of, of Ken Pagnan. I've never met the guy, so he, I I really couldn't comment on whether he's a fine, upstanding You're going dude only on what you know or not. This. So so based on that incident, so I'm of the I've of of the camp that yeah, he's he's suffered enough, like like let it go. He didn't stab somebody. Right, he didn't r- intentionally run someone over in his car. He had a third of a second of insanity. Mm-hmm. And Sandy, I th- look. I'm not. I'm not trying to be a bleeding heart here, but I think he's more than paid for that little moment of stupidity. I don't think he, he's paid appropriately. I don't know if he's more than paid. Let's just say that because he could have really injured someone. I mean, we're going on the fact that he missed. And I think that we are giving him. So I think we are, everyone's putting ourselves in his um, shoes and can imagine that possibly if we had too much to drink and, you know, this momentary, um, you know, lapse in judgment or like, you know, a weak moment. I think he described it as a weak moment and you're going to pay for that for the rest of your life. Some of the things he described subsequent to him doing that. You know, I, I'm not saying that I would be any better, but he left the stadium. There was a woman that they were blaming for a while. He let her be sort of the target of it for a while. I mean, my question would be, would he have come clean had he not been caught on, on you know, so on, you know, he, did he only come clean because it was clear they were going to, to, to find him? So, you know, the And fact I would say the answer to that is absolutely not. And yeah. I'll tell you why. The year before in, or was it, yeah, the year before, when the Jays were playing Texas in that wild game five where Bautista did the bat flip. Remember the, right, in, the half the inning before hit. it? There were hundreds of people at Rogers Center whipping beer cans onto the field and yes, a kid got a hit and a Blue Jay got, player right. almost yeah. got hit in the yeah. head. Where are those people's jobs that are gone? Right. Where are those people's lives that are ruined? And so when you say, would he have turned himself in? If, if this thing hadn't become a big deal, no, he wouldn't have turned right. himself in, but he yeah. wouldn't have had no reason because none of those other people well, that and, I know turned and, themselves and, in. And the irony is, is because that was a single can. If, if it had been a repeat of the year before, and, it was and if one there of had been multiple cans, anonymous. that guy would, none of that would have happened. Unless, in, unless he hit the guy. Right. But if, even then, when those cans were flying down the year before in that Texas game, it was a joke. 
It was all, look, the people are so angry, they're chucking beer cans. Ha, ha, ha. Now, no one was laughing that a baby got hit on the head. I don't mean that. But it was seen as almost a funny thing. Mm Mm-hmm. And now he gets cut. Now, again, I'm not defending him. No. I'm, not, I'm not arguing that people should be throwing beer cans. I just look at this and I go, talk about a guy who picked the wrong time, wrong place. No there kidding. happened to be a photographer shooting the foul ball or the fly ball that was landing right there. So you have the crowd in the background. There's all these pieces. And all, you know what? I, I honestly, what I thought of, this is pretty much typical of everything I did in my youth. Every time I got in trouble because I was the tallest guy in the class, <laughs> I got sp- instantly. My, Other yeah. people could do all kinds of stuff and nothing would happen. My son I do is the, the same. same. I do the same thing yeah. and I get burned. So I've, maybe that's how I felt the kinship for this. That that's a, that would have been me. If once in my life I did something stupid in a public place, I've probably done something stupid, but if I did, I, I guarantee you I'd be caught. So, so, and I'm not a prude, so let me just pre- preface that. But the part of this oh, I didn't like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> the part of this I didn't like, or that I like to think about more, is kind of, kind of fluffing off the drinking part of it. Do you know? So the fact that he had some drinks before and drinks in the thing, so he was drunk, is what we're saying, and he had this weak moment while he was drunk. And so, you know, we talk, could he have gotten, the weak moment could have extended to him getting his car and drinking and driving. You know, there, the Margaret Wente wrote a whole thing on women not being women, generally, who are around guys that have had too much to drink and a little afraid of their weak moments, right? Because they can be, you know, whatever can happen. So that's the only part of this I didn't, I think we was should Was that have Heather s- Malik, you mean? Oh, pardon me. Yes, it was. So that's the only part of this where I thought that, you know... The guy did something that other people have done. He got caught. He lost his job. You know, it, it, he apparently he's a baseball, you know, fanatic, right? So yep. he coaches baseball. I mean, he said, I love the game, respect the game of all people to br- bring dishonor to the game. It's this guy. So I agree. The guy suffered, really. He's, but in the whole story of, you know, of sinning and redemption and people's compassion for other people and empathy and all that this brings us, we kind of just didn't deal with the fact that, a lot of this was fueled by alcohol, right? But Sandy, have we not, Barry, have we not heard of stories of people who have driven drunk, mm-hmm. who have hit people while they've been driving drunk, who have been less polit- or publicly scorned and embarrassed and raked over the coals than this guy for one, again, one stupid thing that I don't believe. See, here's the difference. I believe that getting behind the wheel of your car after you've been drinking is a decision. I'm, I I. I'm not defending. I'm not excusing this. I'm not sure that he went to the park thinking I'm going to throw a right. can of beer at an outfielder. Yeah. I think it was, it was a an impulse. It was an impulse. It was a bad impulse. But I see one as being way different, and yet we're so much more determined to dump on this guy than on people who really do bad stuff that they thought of. Yeah, true. Yeah, you're right. I, I, I I'm again. He's this, not the first alcohol-fueled individual to make a really poor decision. How many at a peop- sporting event. At a sporting <laughs> event, exactly. I bet you, oh, actually, you know what was funny? Um, two years ago, a year ago, I don't know, we were at a wedding. Last summer, we were at a wedding. And one of the people at the wedding had a video that was taken by their next seat neighbor at a Blue Jays game because during the bachelor party... Mm. He had taken off his clothes in the stands and run onto the field and with just underwear and run, and he had streaked the thing. You know what? Want to know something? I believe, if I remember hearing the story right, there may have been alcohol involved in yeah, that. that's right. I would bet you that every person who's ever run onto a field has been fueled by alcohol. I guarantee you the person a few years ago who climbed the goalposts at Tim Hort- at Iverwind Stadium and hung by the flag mm-hmm. was fueled yep. by alcohol. Yep. Th- he's not the first person who's ever been drunk in a sporting event. But it's the, but there are consequences. So so it's sometimes it's funny. Sometimes it's not, you know, and and even wasn't it at at the Blue Jays game? Was it a Blue Jays game when the guy, the the female reporter uh, was interviewing people and the guy said some obscene things? At the TFC game. Yeah. Yeah, And he lost his, you know, and I imagine there yep. was some alcohol involved there, and yep. he lost his job over that. And right? this is the this is the really interesting thing, Sandy. Thanks for bringing that up because it's another good example. I what I think has been lost in this discussion and some other things is when you do something that is wrong, there are consequences, and there's nothing wrong with there being consequences for your behavior. But because you have consequences, doesn't necessarily make you evil. Doesn't mean we should never forgive you. Doesn't mean we should say, okay, that was dumb. Some people 
can't separate the fact that, yes, there are going to be consequences and you have to live with those. And that's part of the whole package. But it doesn't mean we have to hold this against you as a sort of Damocles over your head for the rest of your life. It's like you paid your debt to society. It cost him. It's about redemption, right? There needs to be redemption. I mean, even in our our justice system, it's not supposed to be punitive, right? The whole idea of our justice system is that you pay your debt to society and that you can be redeemed, really. And so, yeah, so if you bumped into him... And it sounds like he understood that. To me, it sounds like I did it and I'm prepared to pay the consequences. I'm sure if he he had a do-over... I'm sure yeah, he would have sure. just drank the $25 beer yeah. and not thrown <laughs> it on the field. Or thrown the hot dog. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, if, but here's the thing. Some people uh, were talking this week. We're going to wrap this up. But some people were talking this week like if they saw him in public, they'd spit at his feet and cross yeah. the road. Yeah, if I see this ridiculous. guy in public and we were to meet, I'd shake his hand and say hi. Right. Right. He has, he has had the consequences. Me holding some grudge against him is not, this no. was not that kind of thing. If he had taken out a gun and shot the outfielder, Mm -hmm. we're talking about a different kind of thing. Right. Right? This is not something where you say, I can't be around that. This is not Hitler. This is not someone who has done this. You can, you can, he can be brought back. He can be accepted back into society if he hasn't already. And it's like, you know what? Okay. Just don't do it again. I, Just don't do it again. I agree. And other people learn yeah, from this guy. Don't do it either. Oh, he's an example. I mean, the whole thing, I'm sure people that are, there's, I can't believe people that are condemning him don't think quietly themselves there, but for a can of Bud go I, right? Exactly. Thank you. Great ending. <laughs> You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Thought of this today, and I thought, I, I want to ask you guys, because if you are like me, this thing, and I'm holding up my cell phone, Barry's got his beside him, Sandy's got hers. I hate to admit that it's the first thing I check in the morning. It's the last thing I check at night. I check it too often. It's attached to me all the time. Atlantic Canada today had a massive cell phone down. The whole thing, the power went down, an outage. Nobody could use their cell phones out in Atlantic Canada. And you know, the first thing I thought when I heard that is, why could we not have that here? Mm -hmm. It almost seems to me that we now need some act of nature or act of God or something to get us to get off our cell phones a little bit. I, I don't know about you. Would you, would you be okay if we had a three or four day cell outage? So there was just, nobody could use their phone and we had to try and live without it. I would love it. I w- honestly, I would love it. I would have the shakes, but yeah, <laughs> I could be okay. It's true I, though. It's true. I'd be staring at a black screen going, please, <laughs> come on. I know. Refresh, refresh, yeah. refresh. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it seems like that would be the only way that will get us to put them down if it, if it won't work. That would be the only thing. Because we have to do it together. It has to be, oh, yeah. you hang up first. No, you hang up. It has to be one, two, three. We're all going to do this because if like you're- Like your teen yeah. years it, with your first crush. Exactly. No, you hang up. Exactly. Yeah. No, I love you more. Yeah. <laughs> well, we we had just had this discussion because uh, my wife and I had just gone away with her sister and her husband to a cottage and it had Wi-Fi. And at the end of the week, when I looked back and I looked at the amount of time the four of us spent- on our devices was kind of sad. Mm-hmm. It was just rather sad because you should go to a cottage and break open a dusty old book and read or get away. And there we were. Talk to the loons. Yeah. Right. I mean, the birds. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> but, like, uh, but we won't, Sandy. We, we can't. And I'm, I'm spe- when I say we, I am clearly putting myself right at the top. Mm-hmm. I am not excluding mm-hmm. it and saying to the other people, we can't put them down. As no. long as it's working and as long as it's there, we can't seem to do it. I, I So my uh, reliance on my cell phone has it just continues to grow. So I would say about five years ago, I started. I didn't, uh, didn't use it quite as often. And my excuse is that my daughter had a baby and I wanted to have the cell phone right beside me in case she called in the middle of the night and there was something wrong Which with the baby, fair. right? But that was the beginning of it. So then it's my phone's flashing as we speak. Isn't yeah. that funny? <laughs> I'm supposed to turn it off. I, but so that was the beginning of me checking it in the night and checking it first thing in the morning. And why do you use your cell phone? You use it to be connected to your friends and family. You use it for work. You use it now for me and I'm most people for my source of news, right? So Twitter feed is my source of news. So there's so many reasons that you 
want to look at your phone, and they're so addictive. And I find if you're um, anywhere, there's any kind of downtime, right? Like if you're just in a, if you're waiting for a friend or there's a quiet moment, you just go, hmm, let's just see what's up with the world. Oh, absolutely. I'll stand in line at the grocery store, and if you know there's four people ahead of me, I'll real, I'll have my phone out, mm-hmm. and I'm just looking on Twitter to see right. what's going on, right. and just without even thinking about me doing too. it, I do it. We we are up at the cottage, and I take it with me, and I go out in the boat. And I say to myself, when I go out fishing, I have to take it with me because if I catch something really good, I have to have my camera because, you know, I want to get a picture of it. But then after an hour of me catching nothing, because I'm enthusiastic, but otherwise horrible at the <laughs> sport of fishing, oh, well, I'm going to stop for a couple minutes here and see what's going on. And it defeats the purpose of the whole thing. It should be... But again, I don't think we can do it. I would love to know if there are people out there today, and I know there are some who don't have a cell phone at all. I, I The best way to not become addicted is just not to get one yes. in the first place. It's like, honestly, I, I, I've i never taken crack, no, I but don't. I have to believe that the Pavlovian response behind this thing I, has to be somewhat similar to the it is. crack I, thing. I, I heard a psychologist once say that the human brain craves new information, any information. It doesn't have to be good information. So if you look on Facebook and I see that you took a picture of the fish and chips you ate tonight, that's new information. Mm -hmm. That's something I didn't have before. And yeah, it's almost like a little hit in the back of your brain. And that's why we do it. Yeah, It's literally, you get a little hit of dopamine every time. So, you know, when you, just so you're saying, so when you check also, when there's a new email, it's like, ooh, there's an email. It's a, it's a mini reward, and the reward is triggered by a dopamine release. So there's there's a whole neuroscience, but you know, chemical well, that reaction behind it. Why? And maybe I'm alone in this one, but if you're in your car and you hear ding because oh, you have a text, it's almost it's painful at times. Not to check. Not to check, and you don't want to pick up your phone, right? Especially, right? And I'll say this because I where did I read this 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 week? There was an accident. And I discovered by reading the story, the police now can actually go onto your phone, go deep into the guts of the phone and determine whether at the time of the accident, your phone had been used with at that time within a few seconds to see if you were actually Mm -hmm. using. So now, even though I was making every effort not to use my phone driving before, now that I know if there ever was an accident that I could be seriously busted. And we're talking jail time now, if you're texting or something and you get now, well, your phone went off, Barry. Uh, now <laughs> there's no way I'm, I'm not do looking, it. but it's so hard when you're driving and you hear that ding, not to check. You almost want to get to a red light. And even then you're not allowed to do it. No, it can't do it then. But find somewhere I can pull onto a side street just yep. to ch- and it'll be like junk mail. I know. And then yeah. it's disappointing. You go, Ooh, I wonder what that is. You go, Oh, it's a yeah, sales. Dear subscriber. Exactly. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I I would love, I, I really would love it if all the cell service went out for about four or five. Remember, if, how long ago was it? 15 years ago, we had that giant right in all, yeah. August, the power outage. To, yeah. Was it 2000? Yeah, it was yes. after the 9-11 when mm-hmm. we all thought this was the second wave. I moved that day, so I had to sleep on the lawn. <laughs> but was that, was that not, though, for most people, for us? It was a great day. You went out in the evening, everyone was sitting outside on their porch. Mind you, 2003, you know, a lot of people back then didn't, weren't as connected as we are now. Like if that happened now, yeah, there would be a lot of collective angst. But even in 2003, people would still watch TV or still whatever. True. Now you were all out just milling about ours on our street. Everyone was out sort of milling around. It was lovely. It was was really nice. And I'm thinking now, let's not even wait for an outage. Let's have, let's have set up preordained outages mm-hmm. well, there's once Earth a month. Day. Isn't Earth it Earth Day where you're supposed to do Earth lights Day, out? Or, what is Day. That? I it's turn on all my lights on Earth Day just to be a contrarian. I want to <laughs> be like Al Gore's house. Why am I not surprised? <laughs> <laughs> it's Earth Day. I want my house to be seen like Chevy Chase from sat, from space. But I support you. I, I, if you're going to start a call, you know, if you're going to start some rally to make this happen, I'll help you. But it, because the point is if it can't just be you doing it individually no. because someone's sending you texts and emails. Where are you? And they, Why exactly, are you not on your phone? Exactly. Yeah. Well, you start it, but we'll have to spread it on social media. Media. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> the Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900, AM 900 CHML.